0: Choice is proudly brought to you by Wordsworth Books. Monday of the month, so it's Book Choice on Fine Music Radio, 101.3, various other frequencies, and on the web www.fmr.co.za. I'm Gorry Bowes-Taylor. This sunny summer hour, Andrew Marshbank's Wordsworth Books, comes up with the very best in fiction and non-fiction on that bookshop's shelves. We chat to world-renowned wino, Hugh Johnson about his engaging and elegant new book. It's called On Wine, Good Bits from 55 Years of Scribbling and he verbally shares a bottle of Chateau Lafitte 1985 with us. A Thousand Tales of Johannesburg by Harry Karma reminds Melvin Menard of the juicy sweep of Armistead Maupin's chirpy books. Cindy Moritz found Maria Semple's Today will be different, seriously funny, yet surprisingly serious. Philip Todris chats artfully to Brenda Schaman about her book The Kais Kama Art Project, Restoring Hope and Livelihoods. March is the month that commemorates the opening, 117 years ago, of the Yeomanry Hospital at Dilfontein, and Myrna Robbins finds fine future Africana in... Yeoman of the Carew, the story of the Imperial Yeomanry Hospital at Dealfontaine, by Rose Willis, Arnold van Weyck, and J.C. K. de Villiers. Mike Fitzjames cruelly sends us stir-crazy with three thrillers. One, Red Notice by Bill Broder, is non-fiction and non downable Finally, Melvin Minar again finds pastoral elegance and delicate writing in *Midwinter* by Fiona Melrose, and do stay with us for our Easy Peasy competition question to win one of two two hundred rand Wordsworth Books vouchers. Andrew Marshbanks, the best fiction and non-fiction pickings
1: from Wordsworth Books. Hi everyone. Hi Gary. Thank you very much. Well, there's a lot coming into the bookshop so I've taken a selection of stuff and first I've got to mention to you there is a new Wilbur Smith for for everyone out there who's a Wilbur Smith fan this is a day to rejoice the Wilbur Smith it's called War Cry and we have it at a reduced price of only $1.99 which is a really fantastic price for a hardcover book so all the fans out there there's no excuse get out there and buy your copy Wilbur Smith, War Cry and it's one ninety nine. Then, I've got several books here. The first one is a book by Barbara Mutch, set in Simonstown. It's called The Girl from Simons Bay and it's set just before the Second World War. It's a lovely story, beautiful reading, in Simonstown, a place that we all love, know and love, And, of course, that time, it was a big part of the South African war effort, because the British Navy was there, and the Royal Navy, and it's about shipbuilders, the daughter of a shipbuilder, it's a true romantic story, beautifully written, a lot of strength there, a lot of drive, it's a book that you don't want to put down, and it's set in Simonstown, so what can go wrong. It's beautifully done. We're doing a launch for the book in our Long Beach shop, which is just near Simon's Town. So I greatly look forward to that. That's 290 Rand. It's called The Girl from Simon's Bay by Barbara Much. And don't forget, we are doing a launch on that one. Right, there's a big series that's just come out. I'm sure most of you remember The Ladybird. Ladybird has done a series of tongue-in-cheek books as a guide for the modern world. There's a guide to dads, a guide to dogs, a guide to computers, etc., etc. Really a mocking but very successful look at the world today in the Ladybird format. And they are wonderful. Well, not to be left out, another publisher has done the Enid Blyton sort of guide or take on the modern world. And there's a set of five, and one of them that caught my eye by Enid Blyton called five go gluten-free and it's a wonderful spoof on the whole famous five outfit with George the boy girl Anne, Dick etc etc and of course the dog Timmy and let me let me just read one sentence from here what on earth is this interrupted Julian it's cauliflower rice said Anne so is it rice or is it cauliflower I'm confused and that's the whole thing, we're going to spiralizers, we go into the whole gluten-free thing. Lovely, lovely spoof for anyone who's interested in this, all the original illustrations. And it's 175 Rand, Ian Blyton, five go gluten-free. Another book that's just come out is Stories of Table Mountain. It's famous visitors who've been on Table Mountain, their reaction to it and their letters afterwards about Table Mountain. It's an absolutely marvellous book this. It's called On Top of Table Mountain Remarkable Visitors Over 500 Years by Joan Kruger and you have astonishing people who've gone up there. Jan Smuts, what he wrote when he was up there, people that we don't know but William Burchell, what he wrote as he went up Table Mountain and after it, their reactions to it, the sights they saw, the visitors, It's just marvelous. It's an amazing idea for a book. It's something that I would never have thought of in a million years. And I think that it's a book that everyone who is a great fan of Cape Town and Table Mountain should have and read, because you can see exactly what people have been thinking of Table Mountain and South Africa. So that's On Top of Table Mountain, Remarkable Visitors Over 500 Years by Joan Kruger. I've got a financial book in front of me and it's a book that the author believes everyone should read. It's a New York Times bestseller and it's called The Road to Ruin, The Global Elite's Secret Plan for the Next Financial Crisis. Now, these sort of books are always amazingly popular in the shop. People love them because they, I'm not sure whether they're ever proved or disproved, but I think if you predict disaster enough, one day it'll happen. So it's one of those books. But it is a snapshot of the financial system at the moment, what could go wrong, what might go wrong, and according to the author, what will go wrong. So it's not happy bedtime reading. The New York Times bestseller, The Road to Ruin by James Rickards, and it's 320 Rand. And then I'm just going to mention, I don't know if people have seen the film Lion. It's a film that I thoroughly enjoyed. But the film Lion was based on a book, and the book is called Lion, again it used to be called a different cover, A Long Way Home, and this was about the Indian boy who gets caught on a train and gets lost thousands of miles away from his home. And he lands up in Calcutta, eventually gets adopted by an Australian couple, goes to Australia and gets brought up there. And then he uses Google Maps, he's desperate to find his mother and his roots uses Google Maps to find out where he came from because he couldn't remember the name of the village. It's a wonderful film and it's a wonderful book and I think if anyone um, was would like to delve further into the film, because it's so good, they should buy the book. It's called Lion by Saru Briarley and I can highly recommend it and it's 205 Rand. Thanks very much, happy reading everyone. Cheers! Hugh Johnson.
0: Let's chat about your new book. It's called On Wine, Good Bits from 55 Years of Scribbling. You've given yourself a grand life, then. It's been 55 years of travelling, tasting, spitting and scribbling. Your annual pocket wine book was first published in 1977. Then there's your well-thumbed, much-treasured World Atlas of Wine, your historical The Story of Wine, and your memoir, a life uncaught and in fact you I have a signed copy of your principles of gardening a very beautiful book and indeed your 2006 OBE was awarded for your services to winemaking and horticultural now the Cape <coughs> comes into on wine tell us Hugh, about your Cape connections and also your views on South African wines now your Cape connections
2: Well, it goes back to my first visit to the Cape was in, i worked it out in 1968, when I came to do a story for the magazine that I was editing at the time, which was Queen, which was fashion and and gossip and social type magazine. And I came with my great friend, a photographer, John Hitchcock. We spent time together. We went um, to the Kruger National Park. We went... Uh, from Durban along the coast we saw quite a bit of South Africa I think I don't think we were very keen on it unfortunately uh, and the story we published caused a bit of a stir when we got back to London
0: that was because uh, then, of apartheid
2: yes it was indeed um, The uh, and then later I can't remember how many times I've been but the next thing really was that in uh, 1977 my first uh, pocket wine book was published wasn't my first book, otherwise it wouldn't have been fifty five years of scribbling. My first book was wine in nineteen sixty six. But never mind that. I asked the platters for help because I mean I'd met them and liked them very much and said, Could you send me information about South Africa? And they said, On one condition, Oh yes, I said and they said, Well, we're going to do a book which will be a rip off of yours. You won't mind, will you? (laughs) So that was the deal. So Platter's wine guide came out just like that, and it was and has been an amazing resource for uh, everybody.
0: And you were at the launch, I think, didn't you? Come out in 1980.
2: That's right. Yes. Gosh, I couldn't remember the date. But so yeah, that was it. And um, Platters were great friends, still are. Haven't seen them for a long time. And I love their book Africa uncorked. Perhaps I even pinched the title for my memoirs. Uh, about every wine in Africa when they did that tour and some of the wines were so appalling they went to every country because they discovered that some nutter was trying to make wine in every single African country. (laughs) I hadn't got a note of all our visits to South Africa but I do know that the latest was quite a while ago, I think five years ago, when we rented a house on the beach at Hermanos.
0: And you got splashed by the whales, I think. (laughs)
2: <laughs> Actually, the whales didn't come up to the beach there, it? Uh, but we, it was a lovely house, and we had a marvelous time, and of course turned inland and went to uh, the, the usual suspects.
0: Fehrgelechen being one of them, I think.
2: Say that again.
0: I think, uh, when you said the usual suspects, I think Fehrgelechen was one of the wine estates oh, yes. you went no, to. I, I,
2: I, miss, I missed your proper pronunciation of that. I wouldn't have been <laughs> so quite so... <laughs> I mean, you would have started with a V. <laughs> <laughs> no, I absolutely love Shakespeare and um, talked about it in all sorts of horticultural ways as well as, as wine ways. And the house, I think, is absolutely magic.
0: In fact, I think you define in your book on wine, you then define the camphor trees as cinnamomom camphora. <laughs> you give them a yeah. the specific Latin name. <laughs> well done and
2: I've, I've always said that if I could that would be the one exotic tree that I would grow in England the one oh. that we can't
0: <laughs> now Hugh you moved from Sailing Hall in Essex to Knightsbridge I think you were saying about four years ago you had wonderful trees in your wonderful huge big garden
2: <laughs> well in Sailing we had an arboretum that t- took me oh I was planting for 40 years uh, really but then uh, we decided to move to London, and I came to Kensington actually. But, um, really, because of where our children and grandchildren live. That's, but that's, you know, that tends to be the deciding factor at our time of life.
0: And was that sort of kind of how this new book on wine came about? You found all your old scribblings during that move, was it?
2: You're right. We we were clearing out. There's a big big house, saving all, and there's a huge attic. With, I think there were nine rooms in the attic. So as I started the clearing out, I suddenly realized that this tea chest and that box and something else were full of manuscripts. And I just hadn't thought about them. I found the manuscripts of a, almost all my old books. Thought, well, I'm not going to dump those. And I looked around for somewhere to, to deposit them. And I went to California and the University of California, Davis, which is this sort of agricultural campus of Berkeley said they'd like them so that's where they are they've started an archive wine writing archive and mine are there and now my colleague and friend Jancis robinson has just robinson has just given them hers so they've they've got an awful bundle of papers to wade through now
0: (laughs) and i mean Hugh, you're a world talking about Jancis as well i mean you're a world distinguished wine writer and uh i think audrey simon was wonderfully your patron you, you know, you've been to all the great restaurants in the world. You could be, if you wanted to, you could be very grand. But you're actually quite unposh. How many wine glasses do you have on the dinner table when you're doing red and white? And <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, too many is the answer to that. I'm glad you think I'm unposh. The, yes, we don't do the whole sort of highly polished um, silver napkins and all kinds of things very often. Occasionally. But uh, I envy real wine professionals like I mentioned, Janssens is one, who drink all wines out of the same glass. They just have a, a tip bucket in the middle of the table, <laughs> and they say next one. Uh, but you need to have. I mean, my kind of amateurish friends don't understand that at all. They say, "What, well, we're not going to finish? This is lovely." <laughs> no, no. It says "Tip it in the middle. Here's the next one." <laughs> but that's the way real wine wine pros operate.
0: We were talking to Hugh Johnson about his brilliant new book, in fact the platter say Hugh's elegant literary staff is matchless. It's called On Wine, Good Bits from 55 Years of Scribbling. And at the end of that pre-recorded chat uh, with Hugh, who was in London, I asked what he and Judy had had for supper the night before and which wine they'd drunk with it. The answer was they went out to celebrate Judy's birthday with a friend and a bottle of Chateau Lafitte, 1985. That's around 500 quid a pop. And here, right up front, is our easy-peasy competition question to win one of two 200-rand Wordsworth books vouchers. 15th of March, the Ides of March, the day of an assassination in Rome in 44 B.C., who was assassinated? Was it Julius Caesar? Was it Wilbur Smith? We're waiting for your answers on 021-401-1013. Minna, intriguing title there, A Thousand Tales of
3: Johannesburg. When award-winning copywriter, dramatist, columnist and novelist Harry Colmer published A Thousand Tales of Johannesburg, a city novel in Afrikaans in 2014, The reviews were good with a few questions. The after-postmodern kind of novel, one eminent critic proclaimed and went on to praise the inventive structure which, so she said, meant one could start reading the novel anywhere along the lengthy, nearly 300 pages of a complex story spanning a century or so with plenty of characters. It's a teasing idea but probably more of a harmless literary gimmick to echo the references to and narrative frame of the Middle Eastern classic One Thousand and One Nights, or Arabian Nights, a book that, among plenty of other references, literary and otherwise, actually features in the main story. The structure of the novel, which so impressed some high-minded literary commentators, flashes back and forward over a substantial period of time, from the Anglo-Boer War to 2008. It involves various personalities, charge the social and political milieu of the times, but centres around the Fannikak family, of whom the retired architect Zweig Fannikak is the main character. Fannikak returns to Johannesburg on invitation to give a talk. He has left decades ago with his beloved wife of colour, exiles under apartheid's immorality act. They had briefly returned to the New South Africa, But this was actually his first visit since Serenita's death. Observation of Johannesburg, before and at the time of his youth, and later when as a young architect he helped to construct the cityscape, is the shifting canvas of the novel. And on this score, Kalmer is an ace portraitist. His attention to detail, sometimes in clever and witty scrutiny, is deliciously real and instantly appealing. It's a device that gets the reader on the author's side without ado. The same applies to the numerous personas and colourful characters he sketches. Literally in 2008 they range from thugs to survivors, the displaced to those hanging in. Among those are a poet and his daughter, whom he only met in later years, her gay stepfather and his partner, a Chinese documentary photographer, a Czech immigrant and a man of all trades, and the enigmatic Marceline who fled the Congo to be caught up in the xenophobic violence of that year. All these characters have back as well as contemporary stories, which bubble up throughout the long read. The setting, if that's the right word, is a smart hotel in Belgravia, while in the distance the township Alexandra goes up in flames. Karma lacks no skill in bringing both scene and characters vividly to life. His dexterity as a dramatist is evident in the different and yet straightforward voices he gives to the people. But sometimes this complexity of the telling is to the disadvantage of the delightful narrative. A reader hopes for more, but some storylines seem simply to disappear. One such as that of the intriguing Marceline. For this reader the flashbacks and juxtaposition sometimes irritated and interfered with what is generally a good, well-paced read. A Thousand Tales of Johannesburg, a city novel, reminded me not too much of the thrills of the Arabian Nights, but of the juicy sweep of the 1970s Tales of the City, Armistead Maupin's lively series of chirpy books.
4: Perhaps love is like a resting place the storm, it exists to give you comfort, it is there to keep you warm, and in those times of trouble, when you are most alone, the memories of love will bring you home. Perhaps love is like a window, perhaps an open door. It invites you to come closer It wants to show you more And even if you lose yourself And don't know what to do The memory of love will see you through For love to some is like a cloud To some as strong as steel A small way of living the way to and some say love is holding on and some say letting go, and some say love is everything, some Some say they they don't know. know. If I oh, could live forever, forever and, and all my dreams come true, my memories of love will, love will, be, of love will, love will be of you. I'm saying letting go.
0: Love, music and lyrics by John Dadver, and it was sung by Edmondo Rami and the lovely Aviva Pelham. Cindy Moritz, a seriously
5: funny novel, yet surprisingly serious. Eleanor Flood has little to complain about. She's married to successful hand surgeon Joe and dotes on young son Timby, whose name was going to be Timothy, but auto-corrected on her iPhone when she shared it with Joe, and they quite liked the version, so they kept it. This is the kind of quirky humour that permeates Semple's telling of a day in the life of Eleanor Flood, the day that she vowed would be different, but that threw up enough glitches to remind her of significant chapters in her life which she shares, making it more than one day in the telling. The book opens with the declaration, Today will be different. Today I will be present. Today, anyone I'm speaking to, I will look them in the eye and listen deeply. Today I will radiate calm. Kindness and self-control will abound. Today I will buy local. Today I will be my best self, the person I'm capable of being. Today will be different. This sentiment speaks so clearly to most readers, especially close to the start of a new year. The desire to do things differently, to change your behavior, and therefore influence other people and challenging situations. But... We are not one day. We are many days, starting from the day we are born. And even when we try to deny aspects of ourselves, we bring episodes of our lives and people who have mattered to us into the present, simply because these things have shaped us, for better or worse. Eleanor had become accustomed to waking up just to get the day over with until it was time for bed. She and Joe had moved from New York City to Seattle 10 years before, and she'd compromised. A successful animator on a TV show in her previous life, she is now a graphic novelist with a seriously blown book publishing deadline. And the favorite part of her life is a weekly poetry lesson, which happens to be on this day, so she's extra happy. The author, who is known to include what might be called bonus material in her novels, reproduces the poem she'll be studying today, complete with scribbles. Later in the book, we are treated to a full-colour reproduction of Eleanor's graphic novel, The Flood Girls, which ties in with the backstory of her relationship with her now-estranged sister, further entrenching this as a less-than-usual read. Maria Semple is funny. Her writing feels effortless and the comedy jumps off the page. She takes what could be a painful, angst-filled look at a contemporary family's first world woes, and while she doesn't trivialise any of it, has fun in telling the story. Without giving anything away, the most surprising part of the book for me was the revelation of what ails and then comforts husband Joe, who Eleanor finds in the first pages... "'Face down at the kitchen table, his forehead flat on the newspaper, "'arms splayed with bent elbows as under a rest. "'She describes it as a jarring image, one of pure defeat, "'the last thing she'd ever associate with Joe. "'Later in the day, when she and Timby arrive at Joe's office "'and announce for a visit, she's greeted by an empty waiting room, "'which should have tripped her alarm. "'The staff, in the middle of a renovation, "'are surprised they've returned early from their week away.' Something's going on with Joe, and Eleanor is determined to figure it out. Amid her own navel-gazing, she may have ignored something much bigger taking place in her family. There's humour, yet there's a note of seriousness too. What works for some may be anathema to others, but we must seek to understand. I enjoyed, today will be different, because it was just that, different, seriously funny, yet surprisingly serious."
0: surprisingly serious and uh, here again is our easy peasy competition question to win one of two 200 rand Wordsworth Books vouchers 15th of March the Ides of March the day of an assassination in Rome in 44 BC who was assassinated was it Julius Caesar was it Smith? we're waiting for your answer on 021 401 1013 and here's a pre-record of philip todris's artful talk with brenda Schmarman.
6: the kaskama art project restoring hope and livelihoods is written by brenda schmemann Brenda, i must confess first of all for sake of transparency i'm not an objective interviewer in this regard i'm just so inspired by dr carol hoffmayer and what she has done in hamburg I'm afraid everything's going to be suffused <laughs> by that. Tell us a little bit about that and the project, and then we'll talk about the artwork as well, which I think is the most important feature, particularly if you as an art historian have covered so well.
7: Well, thank you very much. Yes, Dr. Carol Hoffman has done remarkable things in Hamburg. She went there in 2000 and started up the Kiskama Art Project in a context where people were really struggling to to get any kind of income. It's a very difficult place and, and fairly remote and very few income opportunities. And having started this project, but it was more than just a project to earn money. It's a project which has made some of the most remarkable works, artworks, that really are an asset to us as a country do
6: well, you think that some of the work is currently in the you know House of Parliament say so talk us through, I love the way you use the word parody that's the work is totally original but the references and all of that I found that very fascinating
7: The works are a parody, and what I love about the concept of parody, as we often use it in a a sort of postmodernist concept, somebody like Linda Hutchin uses it, is that parody emphasises difference rather than similarity. So my point is in regard to these works, like when a work such as the one in Parliament, which parodies the Bayeux tapestry, when it it parodies that, it, it uses it to comment on the frontier wars, and it emphasizes difference in the sense that by parodying a European work of art, it's to emphasize the African quality or the South African quality of the local work. So it's not to imitate it, it's to rework it in a critical way, and it actually emphasizes the localness of the work. I think
6: that's the word mm. local is important because I mm. think it is also about context. Mm. Do you want to just elaborate on some of some of the themes they have worked on and some of the t- church altarpieces and so on?
7: The works have, have touched on really remarkable things. The one in in the uh, in Parliament, as I said, engages with South African history and an important aspect of South African history. But other themes that, that have been worked on, for example, are issues around HIV/AIDS, for example. So the Kieskoma Altarpiece, which reworks the Eisenheim Altarpiece by with paintings by Grünewald, engages with issues around HIV specifically, and it takes a a medieval or medieval Renaissance condition, ergotism, and reworks it to look at which was what the the altarpiece engaged with in a certain sense, and reworks it in this altarpiece to engage with HIV AIDS, a contemporary condition. Other works have also looked at things like the environment and the need to sustain it. There have been remarkable projects in, um, done for Kirstenbosch, for example.
6: Yes, I, the whole thing of looking at the environment and looking at the botanicals in a, in mm. a very different... Uh, and I think f- one of the things that has also impressed me is the mm. sculptural quality to the embroidery as well.
7: Yes, on a sort of formal or visual level, the works are not just embroidery on a surface, but they often have additions like wire work or techniques are used in, in such interesting ways like felt work. So they're actually built up on a three-dimensional surface and are almost tactile. There's a very sensitive, inventive use of materials. So if you take something like the Kiskama Guernica, for example, it uses found materials, which are traces of a particular history. So materials are always thought about in creative ways.
6: Well, you have certainly also mm-hmm. looked at your material in a very creative way. For anyone who wants to know about the Kaiskama Art Project the title is Kaskama Art Project Restoring Hope and Livelihoods it's by Brenda Schmaman it is published by Print Matters and it's a remarkable book and something that I certainly will always hold as a very special reference <laughs>
0: Our second piece of music with the word love in it, that was Love Story, music by Francis Lye and it was played by Ken Higgins Myrna Robbins, March is the month, it uh, commemorates the opening in sorry, commemorates the opening 117 years ago of the Yeomanry Hospital at Delfontaine. Your review of the book is pleasantly topical
8: Yeoman of the Carew the Story of the Imperial Yeomanry Hospital at Dielfontein by Rose Willis, Arnold von Dijk, and J.C. K. de Villiers, published by Firefly Publications in Free State in 2016. Rose Willis, who lives in Bloemfontein, is known to hundreds of readers as the founder and compiler of Rose's Roundup a fascinating online monthly magazine filled with tales and events from across the vast Karoo, dating back to the early days when records and letters began to be kept. She discovered Dielfontein when she was promoting tourism in the central Karoo, and she was helped in her research by Dr. van Dijk, an authority on the Boer War with a library of pictures, and another expert, Professor K. Villiers, a captain neurosurgeon and expert on both the war and its medical aspects. The result offers the fascinating story of a little known hospital, which literally sprang up on the desolate plains of the Great Karoo as the 19th century drew to a close. In 1899, the British government realized that this war against a bunch of farmers was not going well for them, and appealed for volunteers. This succeeded as many men, including newly qualified doctors, enlisted with alacrity. So much so that soon ships were sailing for South Africa almost daily. In England, two aristocratic women scrapped their social calendars and set out to raise funds for a private hospital to care for the men who would be wounded. This was an extraordinary achievement. From conception in England to erection in the Karoo, a little less than three months passed before the Imperial Yeomanry Hospital opened at Dielfontein, a narrow valley between a row of copies and a railway siding, 46 kilometres south of D'Arr and 77 kilometres north of Richmond. The date was March the 17th, 1900. To say it was a place ahead of its time is something of an understatement. The huge tent hospital that mushroomed in this desolate region was unique. Along with operating theatres, treatment and convalescent wards, it boasted specialist units for dentistry, ophthalmology and radiology, all first in a military hospital. There was a fire station, a dispensary, electricity and a telephone system. It had its own stables and dairy, which supplied sterilized milk. Steam-driven disinfection and waste disposal units helped in the war against typhoid, ensuring hygienic conditions. The laundry washed and sterilized more than 2,000 sheets a week. Drinking water was filtered and running water was packed through the grounds. There were luxurious touches as well. A huge office's mens- mess with its own mineral water plant and ice-making machine. A chapel, a theater, sports fields, tennis courts, a shooting range, and, can you believe, a horse racing track provided recreational facilities. Thanks adieu to Lady Georgina Spencer-Churchill and Lady Beatrice Chesham, daughter of the first Duke of Westminster, whose husband, Lord Chesham, was commander of the Imperial Yeomanry in South Africa. Lady Georgina focused on liaison with the War Office in the UK, while Lady Beatrice spent much time at Delfontaine supervising affairs. The two women, with help from friends, raised a substantial sum, £174,000 more than enough to equip and staff the hospital. The project was conceived in December 1899, and over the next couple of months, tons of equipment was dispatched from England by ship to be transported to Delfontaine by ox wagon, horse, and slow train. Women from all walks of life also volunteered as nurses, and the staff of 200 personnel was not only highly skilled, but their time there produced many tales of bravery, dedication, and deep friendships. Boer commanders operated in the vicinity on several occasions and skirmishes outside at the gate caused casualties. Both British and enemy soldiers were treated in the hospital. The tales are further brought to life with a fascinating collection of old and a few contemporary photographs scattered throughout the book. The volume combined South African military with medical history alongside tales of the anglo Bur War most will not have accounted. It's a hard back to dip into frequently and to take with you if you choose to visit this site, where cemeteries and ruins rub eerie shoulders in the heart of the great Karoo. I congratulate Rose for fulfilling her dream of publishing a story that she first told me about 30 years ago.
0: Mike Fitzjames, go on, shred our nerves with your three thrillers.
9: Good afternoon, Gory. I have three books to recommend this month. The first is The Nowhere Man by Greg Hurwitz. As a boy, Evan Smoke was taken from a children's home, raised and trained as a part of a secret government initiative that virtually no one knew existed. But he broke with the program, choosing to go off-grid and use his skill set to help those unable to protect themselves. One day, Evan's luck runs out, and he's ambushed, drugged, and spirited away. Evan wakes up in a locked room with no idea where he is or who has captured him. As he tries to work out what has happened, he tests his prison and his highly trained guards for weaknesses. Now, from a presumed broken cell phone, he receives a desperate call for help. With time running out, he will need to outmaneuver his opponent, the likes of whom he has never encountered. If he has to have any chance of escape, he has to save himself to protect those whose lives depend on him or die trying. This was a high-octane thriller. My second choice is... City of the Lost by Kelly Armstrong Detective Casey Duncan has a dark and violent past and so does her best friend Diana they have spent years looking over their shoulders unable to live normal lives out of the blue they are offered the chance to move to Rockton a highly secret sanctuary town hidden from the world It really seems like the answer to their many problems. The two friends are just settling in and creating their own space when a body is discovered. And, as Rockton's new detective, Casey must find the killer and quickly prove her worth. Her job is complicated by the sheriff, a troubled man who is hard to read and even harder to please. A further complication is that her friend Diana seems to be going off the rails big time Casey has always protected her friend but this deep in the wilderness the big question which resonates in her mind is can anybody be safe this was a really satisfying read my final choice is read notice by Bill Browder November 2009 an emaciated young lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky is led to a freezing isolation cell in a Moscow prison, handcuffed to a bed rail and beaten to death by eight police officers. His crime? To testify against the Russian Interior Ministry officials who stole $230 of taxes paid by his employer, financier Bill Broder, Red Notice is Broder's searing expose, a graphic portrait of the Russian government as a criminal enterprise wielding all the power of a sovereign state. With fraud, bribery, corruption and torture exposed at every turn, Red Notice is a shocking and unforgettable true political roller coaster utterly gripping from first to last. It reads like a classic thriller and engages like no other book I can recall. This is simply a must-read and truly exceptional. My selections were Nowhere Man by Greg Hurwitz, City of the Lost by Kelly Armstrong, and Red Notice by Bill Broder. I hope you enjoyed these books as much as I have.
0: Ah yes, read notice the book that, as they say, everyone is reading now, electrifying. Belvin Minna, you found pastoral elegance and delicate writing in Midwinter by Fiona Melrose.
3: The title of Fiona Melrose's debut hints to the pastoral elegance of her delicate writing and the setting of her story. But also the fraught human complexities at play in the cold, cold plot at the heart of this fine novel. Midwinter is in fact the surname of the father and son, Landon and Vale, farmers on the coast of Suffolk, whose psychological distances from each other are brought to breaking point when a serious accident occurs. Unable to communicate with each other, both are driven by grief and guilt since Landon's beloved wife Cecilia died when they were living and farming in Zambia ten years earlier. The novel unfolds through the alternative first-person voices of son and father, and their uncluttered telling and musings propel the tightening tension in gentle dramatic fashion, while the backstory, one of deep personal tragedy, slowly comes into focus during flashbacks. Like the differences of the voices, something like a duet of people talking past one another, Melrose paints sensitive different pictures of the deepening winter landscape of a snowy Suffolk, as steady contrast to the austerity of the family's challenging African sojourn. South African born and now again a regular visitor, Melrose's skill of capturing the farming realism of both the north and the south and the geography and feel of the land gives the novel a remarkable emotional grip. It's a kind of hyperrealism that puts the reader close to the people and the souls she gently minds in placid prose. There are delightful renditions of the manner and means of agricultural and at small farming. The sound of animals, the presence of the produce of the soil, the hardship, the hands-on ways of life are sharply sketched. Similes are farm talk, language of the land, although I didn't quite like the fox and its esoteric presence from time to time. Melrose is also smart at the workings of narrative and tempo. A story is as good as it's told and she knows the power of sharp, tight sentences that resonate. The book sets off dramatically and at high speed when Vale and his best, only understanding friend Tom survives a reckless boat and sea adventure. The guilt element, which pervades the novel, kicks off when Tom is seriously injured and Vale finds it impossible to talk to him about what happened. That escape of death brings the anguish, the doubt and the guilt as well as the past back into play among the father and son, man to man. The irony of not being able to talk to one another between Vale and Tom, Landon and Vale, resounds in the alternative first-person voices that construct the novel. Similar and yet different, it suggests the frailty of familial connections, male bonds and its often paradoxical nature even in this closeness. Midwinter by Fiona Melrose is a smart debut, a great and original read.
4: Is here to stay. Together we'll go in a long, long way. In time, the Rockies may crumble, the broads may tumble. They're only. Made My dear, our love is here to stay. Together we're we'll going a long, long way. In time our rockies may crumble to broaden me to home.
0: was our third piece of music with love in the title it was Our Love Is Here To Stay music by George Gershwin lyrics by Ira Gershwin and it was sung by Virginia Wersthausen and that's it then thank you for your welcome calls the Ides of March it was poor old Caesar who was assassinated today's winners and we're giving away three just because we had so much love in the title and because the Ides of March we're giving away three lots of 200 round vouchers they go to uh, Fiona Watermere it looks like, Lachika Ibrahim and Larry Aberman. We'll be ringing you straight after this. Tuesday stay by your telephones. It's matinee up next with Johan Gerber and Amanda Buerta's book, here, sir, at the same time on Wednesday, March 22. If you missed any titles, you will find all in a few days' time on the book choice podcast on www.fmr.co.za from rick everett who kindly compiled the music and cleverly kept the show on the road and for me gory bows taylor it's happy mad march reading book choice was proudly brought to you by wordsworth
1: books hi i'm andrew from wordsworth books we have bookshops that are a bit different we have staff that are a bit different We love our customers, and we are passionate about our books. From paperbacks at 59 Rand to Leonardo da Vinci at 2,000 Rand, our selection is remarkable, and we sell special stationery as well. Wordsworth. We sell books the old-fashioned way. We read them.